0: We all have business ideas from time to time. At least, I know speaking for myself, I think I get one every week. When we think of it, we convince ourselves that the market is too crowded or there would be no takers for yet another shop, another consulting firm, yet another podcast even. So with so many well-established choices available, why would a customer want to try yet another option? And yes, that may be true in the broad sense, But who says you have to go broad? When you're starting out, you don't need much to be successful. And success could well come from targeting underserved niches, segments of the market that others haven't spotted or cannot serve effectively or profitably. Today, we talk with Azmul Haq, founder and managing director of Collier Law, a Singapore-based law firm specializing in startups and entrepreneurs, a market segment that Strangely enough, no established law firm really focused on before. We're going to discuss his career journey and how he came upon the opportunity that he's now building into a success at par with older, more established law firms that he used to work with. But before we begin, a couple of very quick reminders. If you like this episode, and we are sure you will, please do rate it five stars and also Please follow the show so you don't miss out on any of the great guests that we have coming up. Also, if you need a recap after the episode, feel free to head over to crazytalk.online to read the full transcript. And more exciting, Asmol has kindly offered to leave with us his 5 top legal tips for new businesses, which will also be available as a download link on the website. So if this show has inspired you to start something do make sure you check that out. So with that said, Asmol, welcome to Shop Talk. It's a pleasure to have you here with us today. And maybe we could start with a quick intro and a little bit about Collier Law as well. Thank you very much, Amit. Thank
1: you for having me on the show. Uh, I'm very excited to be, I think, one of the first few guests on Shop Talk. So a little bit about Collier. So we're essentially a professional services organization. So we're a Singapore law firm, but we are focused as most boutiques are on on a segment of the market that we felt was underserved. And so we focus on emerging tech and innovation economy. And that includes high growth startups, of course, includes serial entrepreneurs who are looking at always pushing the envelope and doing something innovative and probably disrupting the really big players in any market. But we also advise larger organizations on complex legal issues associated with technology and its deployment. So I guess we could say we are focused completely on the technology sector.
0: I think there's a real need. I mean, I've worked in tech over the last few years, and I do know that the way that you think about working with lawyers is very different when you're trying to push the envelope, try new things, versus where you're just trying to mitigate risk. But why don't we start at the beginning? So you've been a lawyer for, I think, about 20 years or so. So how did you get started and what was your early journey like?
1: Right. So I qualified as a lawyer in 2001, which is just after the dot-com crash. I started my career with a large international network called Anderson Legal, which was, you know, the sister organization to our Anderson accounting firm. I was a lawyer associate in what they call the technology, media and telecoms practice, but it wasn't really so much a practice as it was an industry facing vertical. That basically served clients who were in that vertical. So, in some way, I've always been associated with the wider technology, media, and telecoms industry sector. So, my early years as a lawyer was very much spent in the trenches, as they would say. I would spend an insane number of hours working on legal due diligence reports, you know, working on client calls that stretched sometimes sort of well beyond the official 9 to 5, 9 to 6 jobs. But I really value those years because I think it taught me you know, a lot about the law and the application of law to solving a business problem. But it also demonstrated to me, I think, the real importance of having more senior lawyers teach you the tricks of the trade. In my view, it's not possible to be a good lawyer if you haven't had great training, if you haven't had fantastic mentors, and if you haven't had the sort of complex work that you are only able to really learn on the job. And I'm very grateful for having learned the ropes, because it's simply not possible for you to graduate from law school and be any good at what you do. Because in know, law school, like I guess most other academic degrees, just gives you a flavour about this discipline, but it doesn't really teach you any of the life skills or any of the work-related skills that you would need in the workplace as a practicing lawyer.
0: What you're saying is, unlike in tech, you can't exactly be a college dropout and start a law business. I wouldn't trust any lawyer who's dropped out of college and wants to represent me. So that's interesting. Essentially, you're saying that the early years or actually a substantial part of your career was necessary to build up to what you're doing now. It's not possible to have done this any earlier, or at least not to have done it with any degree of credibility or confidence. But it sounds like overall, you were doing well, right? You've worked in a variety of places in with, I guess, broader and broader remit. So why did you decide to give that up and do your own thing?
1: So absolutely, it is the 10,000 hour rule that applies very much to the legal profession, you know, without spending those 10,000 hours, really honing your skills, you may not be really in a position to demonstrate and to add value. But once you have that, and you are in a better position to, of course, test the market, right? Test the market and see what else is out there. What can you use your skills for? For me, I suppose there were two things that were playing on my mind. The first was a term called YOLO. And that's essentially, uh, you know, you only live once. Uh, So
0: You're showing that you're a lawyer for the growth industry. (laughs) I don't think most lawyers would have used this term as part of the discussion.
1: Thank you, Amit. Maybe there's something like intrinsically inbuilt into my DNA because I am able to take risks. I'm very comfortable with taking risks. And when I realized that I'd finished 14 years and I could see the next 14 years, you know, very clearly, I knew exactly what would happen. I was already a partner at that point in time, so it wasn't a case of, you know, me, I suppose, going up the ladders anymore. But it was just a very different type of, future that I wanted to try and foresee for myself. And that necessarily involved being an entrepreneur. The legal services business is high risk. The ability to scale is not very easy. The ability to create a niche in the market and really monetize is dependent on a lot of things because we primarily rely on human talent and the ability of that human talent to solve problems for their clients that have a commercial impact. We are obviously very constrained In terms of what we can do so the principal problem really in me taking a chance with things is that i didn't want to leave the law i certainly enjoy advising and being creative with legal issues and trying to find solutions so i was certainly not looking to do do a tech startup on i don't know on home sharing or something like that but i did realize that it couldn't be what you said i mean is that do it on your own a lot of people associate you're doing your own thing with or oh, you're, a, you know, you have a side hustle, or you sort of, you know, a sole provider. You're doing something, you know, really with a, without a lot of substance. I didn't want what I did next to be a cottage industry. If I may <laughs> it had to be a very credible organization that had the substance from day one. And this means everything. It means everything from having an office in the CBD, in the Central Business District, to registering and being licensed as a law firm. Law being a profession, we have a lot of regulation that surrounds what we do. So all our lawyers have to not just be registered, you know, we pay subscription fees to the Law Society, we need to have continuous professional education. And of course, we have to get insurance. The professional indemnity insurance is quite a scary thing. It means that if you get something wrong and your client sues you, yeah, sure, the insurance pays it out, but you're sort of history, right? Because you've messed up. So all, with all of these things, it's not an easy gamble to found the law firm. But to be perfectly honest, I couldn't get any satisfaction with what I was doing before. So, you know, to solve the problem of purpose, what were you doing with the next 20 years of your career? I decided that I must found the law firm and it must be more than just me. It must have many full-time employees at different levels. It must have infrastructure, you must have technology licenses, or Microsoft Office 365, and you know everything else. And then you must have a website, and you must be a fully functional business from day one. So that was the big decision. It was simply not possible for me to say, all right, I'm going to do this on the side for a month or a quarter, and then see whether it it works out or not.
0: That's a really interesting point because for many kinds of businesses, you can start small on the side, or you know, like some microscopic thing. And then if it proves value or viability, then you kind of go into it whole hog. But you're right, as a lawyer, you can't exactly be advertising on, on Upwork or Craigslist, you know, trying to do something on the side. So you're right, you had to take a real plunge, not just dip your toes in the water. So first of all, what was the idea that you thought you could commit to in such a big way?
1: So that's a great question. I mean, The primary market opportunity that I saw was to be trusted counsel, you know, trusted advisor for this group of people who were very underserved, you know, at least at that point of time in 2015 when I started law firm And this group was essentially serial entrepreneurs, really smart tech for who knew exactly what they were doing in terms of developing technology that could disrupt incumbents and, you know, grow those companies into unicorns. But clearly they had never dealt with a lawyer before. You know, they had never had occasion to uh, you know deal with a lawyer in the way that large MNCs often have you know in-house teams for everything from legal to to compliance and you know marketing etc so and I thought that that also needed somewhat of a different mindset and a different approach when you dealt with those clients because they were not instructing lawyers based on budget to large MNCs would hire the largest law firms in that country simply because it demonstrated, a sort of robustness right and simply it didn't work quite the same way with entrepreneurs because i think with entrepreneurs it was more a question of gaining their trust and gaining their trust in a way that told them that i've got your back as your advisor so go ahead and do what you need to to disrupt the world because we're going to be by your side and i think even more importantly we're going to be at your side in a way that is supportive and it going got to be mindful of the fact that you're an early stage company that is not able to afford probably hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees every year. And that's a very critical part of the business model that I had to evolve because very clearly, we had to be viable financially. But at the same time, we simply didn't want to apply the early rate to many of our early stage clients because we knew it would not work simply from an affordability point of view.
0: I think law firms also work on a Thought process of helping clients avoid problems or avoid risks. Whereas startups don't really see things that way. I mean, the whole concept of a startup is to take the risk and to run towards it. So, is that also kind of thought process or a mindset you had to adopt?
1: It absolutely is. Uh, I mean, and I think we need to simply put ourselves in the shoes of the client when we advise uh, or when we sort of make recommendations at a certain advice. Uh, Because we have to keep in mind that the client, really, you know, whether it's a large multinational corporation or whether it's a high growth tech company, the client isn't really interested in the legal merits of our advice if it was not commercially feasible for them to do what they are trying to do. It does take a different mindset to say, hang on, this is what you're trying to achieve. And here's the current regulation on the topic and maybe there's a way in which you achieve what you're trying to do without flouting the law without maybe even affecting the current legal prohibition or regulation and that's the creativity that's about as creative as we can get unfortunately as a lawyer but that's the part that really i think brings me back every day to my desk and that's what really drives me and gives me that sense of purpose
0: every day so essentially that's the niche that you found right which is For this group of clients, they're looking for a solution-oriented approach, like how do I get this done versus how do I avoid getting into trouble? I mean, it's the two together, but the second is not the primary and only concern. It's more about business outcome. And so the niche that you figured out was that these people need somebody who can partner with them to solve the business problem versus telling them why it couldn't be done. And the second thing is you wrap this in a logic of we can't do hourly rates because that's not going to work for these people. So we're going to adopt a different pricing model. So what was that different pricing model?
1: So I mean, we have a couple of models. Uh, the first is what we call a fee estimate with assumptions and qualifications model. Because we've done it hundreds of times, we can tell you exactly how much that costs. So we give a fixed fee estimate, which is for the most part, you know, it's a cap on fees. However, we have assumptions and qualifications and those to things that are outside our control. And so the client you know, has, on a very transparent basis, actually a lot of certainty as to the amount of fees that we we'll pay. So that's one of the models. The other model is where it's called the Retainer Model or the Prepaid Hours Model. And effectively with that, the client knows that we're on call. You know, the client has the comfort of knowing there's always a team at Collier Law that is looking at their business and the sort of issues it will it will anticipate. And they agree a certain amount of fees on a monthly basis. So it, it's somewhat like the client having their own in-house counsel,
0: but who's on the outside. Okay, this makes sense. So essentially you've differentiated yourself now, both in terms of the culture and the approach that you take to the client, and also in terms of your pricing. You've figured out the problem you want to solve you know how you're going to differentiate yourself. So when you decided to take the plunge, did you have any doubts or were people telling you that something may or may not work? How were you thinking? What were you feeling at that time?
1: Yeah, so to be perfectly honest, I didn't had doubts about there being a need in the market for something like this, or for that matter, a doubt about whether I truly wanted to do this. And those two, I think that the self-belief that I would give it my best shot really helped me you know, launch this at the time that I did. I think timing had a lot to do with our success because at that point in time, Singapore was, you know, they had added being a center for technology, being sort of the Silicon Valley of Asia, you know, their list of focus areas for the future. And very clearly, we were in a position to move fairly quickly because, you know, we were a smaller organization. We were nimble. You know, decision-making was quite quick. It was made online breakfast table effectively so all of those things really prompted me to launch this very quickly but i also have to say this i mean for future entrepreneurs and especially entrepreneurs in professional services is i think you do need to have almost you know a poker players mentality with going all in because you don't win big if you don't go all in and i can't reiterate this enough i mean i literally set aside your salary for the family you know got a wife and two kids and some furry animals in the house So I had to set aside a year's salary to make sure that I didn't kind of go back on my entrepreneurial journey. And when I did that, and I said, look, now we're financially secure, at least for the next 12 months. And after which I can take a decision on whether to continue or not. But for this period, I didn't want to have that, you know, those niggling doubts that is this really going the right way. And that mentality is extremely important for entrepreneurs. I feel if you really need to succeed in a big way.
0: Yeah, I think this is really good input, Azmul. Essentially, I like the poker player analogy. You don't really know what's on the other side of the table, but you have to go all in anyway. But you can mitigate the risk, which is what you did, which is, look, I mean, for a year at least I'm covered and then we'll see after that. So I think a really good insight. So let's move on to the first customers. So now you've decided you've gone all in, you're ready to go. So how did you get your first few customers?
1: Yeah, so professional services is very much a word-of-mouth based industry. We get a lot of referrals from former clients, sometimes they are intermediaries who work with us on related aspects of transactions and on m a work on financing, etc. Very often it's people in your extended social network who maybe have a good sense of what you do based on how you've had yourself out. So I never called myself full-service lawyer. I think when you do that, you, you sort of limit your identity because people don't have a good idea of what you do. And unfortunately, their idea of what a lawyer does may be quite influenced by Boston Legal or one of those shows. So I make it a point to really be quite specific about describing what is it that I do and what the objective is effectively. So our objective is to help high-growth technology companies that are going from idea to exit, navigate legal issues in the most cost efficient way. And that I think has a really clear message, you know, put out there. We're not in the business of professional services because it's just a way to make a living. I probably know a lot of other ways in which I can spend the next 20 years of my career. But the reason I'm doing this is, you know, truly you want to make a difference to the fortunes of this early stage economy. Uh, and it's the early stage economy today, uh, but they might be the giants of tomorrow. Uh, they might be the largest companies on the NASDAQ in the next 15 years. We want to make sure we play a role of enabler, a role of ecosystem builder uh, with this technology innovation economy that is being built out in Singapore, Southeast Asia. And, and we just simply want to be known, you know, very good at what we do in helping that part of the economy grow
0: and succeed in a big way. So you're trying to do something where, first of all, you want to be an established firm, not a solopreneur, right? So you need multiple people. And these people all have to be tuned towards working with startups, which is a very different mindset from maybe what they've been trained to do. So how do you find good people and being a relatively small law firm, and at least initially a law firm with hardly any brand name or brand recognition, how did you find people and how did you keep them and how do you can continue to grow? So
1: this is probably the toughest part of my job. I mean, how do I attract, retain, and you know, continue to inspire the human capital that we employ. Uh, so what we've tried to do is we've tried to build a sense of community, build a sense of, you know, collegiateness and a sense of, you know, really being being friends outside of work and really helping you know, each other with our broader life goals, right, to an extent. I mean, we certainly can't do what large multinational companies do in relation to this, but I'll give you an example. I mean, if you know that one of our employees is somebody who likes, you know, a social catch-up once in a while and, you know, would love to get a beer somewhere, we can try and make sure that happens with a senior member of the team or it happens as a group where the whole firm goes out and, you know, probably has an evening out somewhere. So There's a lot more possible pre-pandemic. Um, you know, we would all actually do a meal every quarter, uh, we would do, biannual corporate events that involve things like laser tag doing a a sort of amazing race asia treasure hunt that we would do on our ipads and you know go all over singapore trying to find famous monuments and putting together clues so we did lots of fun stuff like that to build that sense of community and that sense of you know we care about you a bit more than just how many hours you put in at work But I think the single most important thing is probably the sense of purpose as well. We're acutely conscious that millennials need more than just money. And therefore, the sense of purpose for us is the same as the sense of purpose that I had when I founded the firm, which is we're not a social impact company, but we are using our skills and our training and our education as lawyers to make that social impact happen. And that that social impact is really by having tech companies you know, really grow and scale, they are in a position to transform the way we live. Well, I can't think of a single large tech company today that hasn't fundamentally affected the way that people think. And that to us is the sense of purpose that, you know, actually you're doing something very exciting. You're not doing something that, you know, everyone who's a lawyer in the legal market gets to do because, you know, we catch them young. We work with these companies pretty much from the time they incorporate. We're often a sounding board uh, for them as they strategize their plans, at least. Uh, and we grow with them. Literally, we've kind of seen them. I'll give you an example. of The company that we took on in 2019, when they were raising a very small seed round of, of barely $500,000. Two years later, they're a unicorn several times over. And that gives us an incredible sense of satisfaction that, you know, we had a role to play, for sure. Without question, we had a role to play. in that growth has been such a short period of time.
0: And actually, this also means that you probably have to be quite in touch with their industries, right? Or generally the tech or startup industry in general.
1: That's absolutely right. I mean, I think industry knowledge is critical to what we do. So we encourage all our lawyers, particularly the junior lawyers, to build that habit you know, into their daily routine, if you like listen to a podcast, listen to an audio book if you need to, or read about it. I've started subscribing to The Economist since I started the law firm because I realized it's quite important to actually know what's going on with many industries that you know you may not directly deal with, but there is very often an impact that your client faces. And i think give you a great example. We had a client that was in the travel tech business and who essentially an aggregator for you know, not just a holiday, but a holiday and a trip around the pilgrimage. So they had a large market in the Middle East, you know, relating to travel that is made for the Hajj. And they were at a fantastic point in March 20, I would say probably about December 2019, truly probably on the path to being a unicorn in terms of the valuations that they they were receiving. But unfortunately with COVID, you know, which was, well, the first case of COVID was in December, 2019. But by the time it was March, it was really, You know, the writing was very clearly on the wall that travel really would not be an industry that could boast those valuations. And so having that happen and having that, you know, being able to navigate that from the point of view of the founder. I remember I received the call that the founder was very worried about whether he should raise the full amount of capital that he was raising or should he hold back because, you know, surely a a fundraise later would be more valuable. And I remember telling him that he should actually raise as much money as he could on the same valuation because there was a big chance that COVID would affect you know, the travel industry. And as it turned out, I mean, there that was, that was probably more business-related advice than legal advice. But it's extremely important for us as lawyers to be aware of what's going on in the world, in geopolitical tensions, whether it is you know, an industry breakthrough, you know, in a particular pattern that's going to you know, revolutionize digital health you really have to apply all of that in your in your sort of holistic approach to advising clients on the law.
0: Yeah, that's right. We probably saved that platform. <laughs> if they'd under-raised, I don't think they would have lasted through like 2 years of this. Okay, so I think this is pretty cool. E- effectively, all of this that we've just talked about is about how you differentiate, how you find the best people and keep them and how you get customers. So now, you know, those are the basics and it sounds clearly like you all figured it out on the way and fairly early. What are some of the other challenges that you have, let's say, right now in running the business?
1: Yes, I think life's never perfect. So while we've had, I think, a fairly good run in the last six years, you know, we've advised on more than 450 different legal matters for more than 250 clients in the last six years, and many of them are repeat customers. I think where we see a potential challenge or threat is from you know, international law firms that have offices in many, many countries and then obviously are able to afford a far more broad-based legal service. So I would equate us to being a speedboat, you know, at this point of time, which is you know, very agile, is able to go fast and you know probably looks good at what it does, but it can't navigate the open seas as well as probably a larger vessel. So we're probably looking at a sort of legal joint venture or a merger or a combination with a large international law firm that would enable us to, you know, continue to do what we do well in Singapore and as their Singapore office. But at the same time, you know, have that network of offices in many other parts of the world. Many of those centers, you know, could and, you know, maybe tech centers, centers for tech and innovation in the future. And that definitely helps us, uh, you know, with the network effect where a lot of the work that we do now that is relating to a cross-border legal issues. I'll give you an example. We advise a digital health company in an acquisition of a a business in the UK that has a lot of contracts with the NHS. And surely we would not be able to do that, that type of transaction without the appropriate legal advice at the uk level which meant that we needed to engage with the firm in the uk for that so hopefully that we're in an international law firm network we're even better positioned to help our clients who are Singapore headquartered companies expand overseas you know grow organically or in you know, organically in other parts of the world and be really joined up in the provision of legal services on a global basis
0: i think that makes a lot of sense especially because the clients that you support i mean the natural behavior of such clients especially tech startups etc is to grow and that means geographic expansion maybe business line expansion and so on so so what you're saying obviously makes sense work with other partners so that you can continue to support them on a bigger canvas so Asmol, thanks a lot i think this has been a fantastic conversation and i really appreciated you know your candid discussions on this topic and i think our listeners will get a lot out of it as well So let me just summarize three or four I think key takeaways that I had from what you said number one especially in the business that you're in and I'm guessing this is the case for many many service businesses you need to first do it for a period of time before you can claim to be an expert and that expertise is what is going to let you do it on your own so therefore you know take the time to learn the business build the credibility, also build the client you know, potential future client base or referral base. So that's point one. Point two is that in every sphere, I think, or every market, however crowded or kind of well established, it might seem there is a way to stand out. And you picked one way to stand out. And that's worked very well in your favor. And I think the corollary there is that once you have found that niche continue to do to specialize in the niche and go deeper and deeper and become the person who does that niche extremely well and you've innovated you know your business model the way you deal with clients your entire approach to kind of supporting that niche which other people obviously will struggle to replicate the third thing I think you said is that once you have committed or made up your mind you need to commit so go all in maybe you should have a safety net like what you set up with your one year of savings. But essentially, you need to go all in. You can't be doing this stuff half-heartedly in definitely in your sphere and again in many, many service businesses. Then I think I also appreciated as a fourth point, the way you continue to innovate in other areas. So how do I keep my people? How do I innovate in the field of, let's say, HR when it comes to law firms and keep people interested, motivated and make your company a different and more interesting place to work for millennials or people who are looking for something a bit different and similarly staying abreast of new technology, new trends, etc. So continues to be on that innovation sort of theme. And finally, I think you're saying that your journey so far has been great. I think it is worked out much as you wanted, but to expand further in future, you are open to the idea that you will need to work with other players. It's not as if you must do it alone forever that this is as valid a way of expanding as any.
1: That's right. That's great, Sabri. I I couldn't put it
0: better. So thanks a lot, Asmul. I really appreciate you being here with us. And for everyone who's listening, thank you so much for tuning in. You'll find the show notes at crazytalk.online and also a link to Collier Law in case you'd like to learn more about Asmul and this fantastic company that he set up and a link to our, or rather not our, Uh, My tips would be useless, but uh, Asmul's top tips for startups and new businesses. Do remember to subscribe, follow. And if you like this episode, please leave us a five-star rating. We would really appreciate it. So thanks once again, Asmul. Really a pleasure having you with us. Thank you. So we were Asmul and Amit with Shop Talk. See you next time.